that is all I have for announcements. I do want to say that after service, as always, we will have a time of fellowship right here on Zoom, and everybody is invited to that. And so if you're new, if you've been here forever, uh, you can uh, just plan to stick around on Zoom, and we'll have a time of sharing prayer requests and praises and that kind of thing. Uh, but before we hear from the word of God that will be read to us by our sister Carmita Fong, uh, I'm going to say a word of prayer for the, the reading of, of God's word as well as the preaching of God's word. So if you will uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time that you have gathered us together today, Lord, for this day of worship, Lord, for this time of prayer, for now, this time of hearing your word read to us and your word taught to us, God. I pray that you'd be with uh, Dr. Ra as he teaches from your word, Lord. May it pierce our hearts, Lord. May our eyes and our ears and our hearts be attuned to the words that he says, and may those words, Lord, may they be driven and led by you and by your Holy Spirit. And God, as Carmita reads the word of God, to us, Lord, I pray that you would give her clarity, Lord, give her peace of mind, and may your word wash over us as our service continues, Lord. We pray all of these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Amen. And don't forget, after the sermon, uh, we will partake in the Lord's Supper together. So if you haven't, grab a drink and a uh, piece of bread or a cracker. But with all of that, I will stop talking and I will pass it over to you, Carmita. Thank you, Chuck. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so that they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this will come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in, in this name. And here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our father raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by, the, by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might, even found, you might be even found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Amen. Amen, Dr. Ra, I will give it to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, dear brothers and sisters, for um, inviting me into your church. Um, I am actually really thankful for the opportunity to preach. Um, some of you know that for the last uh, 15 plus years, I've been teaching at a seminary. Uh, but prior to that, uh, for uh, 15 years prior to that, um, I was a, a church pastor um, and actually had spent uh, 10 years planning a church in the Boston, Cambridge area. Um, so when I was a church planter, church pastor, a local church pastor, I was doing more kind of regular preaching uh, from the word of God, just kind of going through portions of scripture. Uh, but since I've been a professor, I've really focused more on usually talking about one topic. And in this case, I've been doing a lot of writing on lament. Um, and whenever I speak at churches, it's usually on that topic. Um, so I don't get to do the two things that I really enjoyed when I was a local church pastor. And one is preaching to a church plant, which is different from more established churches. And two is just kind of getting into a passage of scripture and just trying to uh, explain God's heart in that passage of scripture. So I get to do both of that today. So I'm very thankful for that opportunity. Um, but it's also a real joy for me to participate in a church plant. And again, as I said, that's my background, my work, and my heart passion is still in church planting. Um, and I've, I've taught on it. I've done it. I've, um, uh, even though for the last 15 years, I've been more in academic work, um, every church planter has just one more church plant left in them. So those of you who are saying, this is it, I've done my church planting and I'm not doing any more, I'm not, you never know. You might have that one more left in you. God might call you to do one more church plan in your life. Um, so I really feel a great sense of empathy and, and, and just love for congregations that are just starting out and the move of God that can happen in these kind of early stages of church plan. And I'll say this, having been through four different church plans in my life, 
the early years together are absolutely the most incredible treasured years. Uh, there comes a point when the church is a little bit larger, it's a little more established. And honestly, that gets boring because you just kind of do everyday stuff. You know, what churches do, you count the offering and you have a good service. But these early days when it's a smaller group and you get to know everybody and you're really doing life together, uh, when sadly, when churches get to a certain size, 100, 200, even larger than that, uh, you lose some of that real sense of closeness and community. Uh, so treasure these moments when it is 15, 20, 30 people, because those are the moments as the church plant that you will remember. And you will say, yeah, that's what it really meant to be a community in those early years, bonded together in God's purpose and heart. Uh, those are the joyful years. Um, I also have a lot of empathy for church planting pastors. Uh, so Pastor Chuck, I'm there with you. I've been there uh, four times around. I've been a church planting pastor, so I know what it's like. Um, I kind of thought you invited me a week late. Because last week, I know the topic was Ananias and Sapphira. And that, to me, is one of my past favorite passages to speak as a guest because it talks about money, right? It talks about stewardship. So the worst thing a church planning pastor can do is talk about money because then, like, there's all this, like, negative press about, oh, that pastor talks about money. You don't want that. So I would have been more than willing to have come last week and say, hey, why aren't you, why aren't you, you know, <laughs> where's, the, where's the money? Because <laughs> that's what that passage was more about. Um, so church planning pastors obviously don't like to talk about money. I would have gladly taken that up for you, but oh well, that was last week. Um, I also know that it's Palm Sunday, and uh, how am I going to connect this passage to Palm Sunday? Well, we'll figure this out. I'm going to try to do all of this in about 20 minutes, so we'll see how, how we can make this work. Uh, well, let's look at this passage in Acts chapter 5. Um, and last week you talked about the passage with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and uh, that the context, of course, for any kind of biblical passage is always important. It's good to kind of tie these uh, stories and threads together because they're not unrelated and not just kind of thrown together. Uh, they really are, uh, a, a, they make for a larger story and they're connected to one another. So what you talked about last week in Acts chapter 5, the first half of chapter 5, is very, very significant, significant and important. And as uh, was mentioned, it was the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, um, one of the things about preaching in the book of Acts is that because it's the early stages of the church universal, the, the church in, in the world, um, it gives good insight into local church planting as well. So that's uh, when I was a, a church planting pastor, I would, within the first year, focus on the book of Acts as a good parallel to early church and church planting. Uh, but I will say that Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is probably not the best church planning technique. Uh, I, I teach church planning classes, and I would never say, this is what you need to do in about week three, you know, have somebody die and then blame them. And, you know, that, that's, not, that's, not a, that's not a user-friendly church, you know. So, hey, did you hear about this new church starting in Hell's Kitchen? Yeah, what's going on? Well, people, you know, fall dead. Oh, you mean they were slain in the spirit? Is it a Pentecostal church? No, they literally fall dead. Oh, I am not going to that church ever. That is not the church I want to be a part of. If they're doing that in week three, that doesn't sound like a user-friendly church. It doesn't sound like a church I want to be a part of at all. Um, so yeah, that was not a user-friendly message in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But the funny thing is, or the interesting thing is, in verse 13, it says that the people were uh, held them in high esteem. So here, this new uh, Christian community, 
and they would have you know not been known that much it would have been this new group essentially in uh, in uh, in uh, in the in the society at the time and yet the people held them in high esteem but this is my favorite part of it but none of the rest of them dared to join them well that's because of what just happened in the early part of acts 5 but this idea of the people around them holding them in high esteem is a, is a recurring theme in the book of Acts. You saw that in Acts chapter two, you'll see it again towards the end of this chapter, this idea that the people held them in, in high esteem. But I wanna, I wanna point something out here. Uh, most of us, when we see that phrase, we kind of think we know why. We think, oh, of course they held them in high esteem. Look at the great things that were going on. They were growing, they were doing all of these great things. Uh, look how much fame that Peter had. Uh, signs and wonders are regularly happening, sick are being healed. And I agree, those are very good things that people will see and say, oh, I wanna be part of a community like that. So it's not that good stuff is happening and people held them in high esteem, that's good. But there's something added to the variables in the book of Acts. It wasn't just that they were doing good things that attracted attention. It was who they were that drew people to them. So notice the difference here. You can do good things externally and project an image and project success, project things that people want to be a part of because, hey, look how great these people are. But that really wasn't the attraction. They weren't held in high esteem because of the things they were doing. They were held in high esteem because of who they were. Uh, we saw this in Acts chapter 2 where, oh, it must have been Peter's preaching. And they were held in high esteem because of Peter's preaching. That's why preaching is so important to the early church. But if you look at Acts chapter 2 and, and really study it, you'll find out the reason people held the church in high esteem is they shared everything in common and gave to the poor. That's why they were held in high esteem. Not because Peter was such a great preacher and he was attracting people with, with all these dynamic programs. They just saw in that church a group of people they wanted to be like and be a part of. So it's not drawing people in because you're doing something spectacular and fantastic. You're drawing people in because of who you are. And uh, you are held in high esteem because of your character, because of your values, because you exhibit a life in the church that they don't see in the world. So, I mean, I, I kind of think if I were to teach a really bad church planning class or really give bad lessons to church planners, I would say, I would, re, I would really interpret that section of, of Acts chapter five very differently. I would say, hey, get as much good publicity as you can. And then people will start showing up, right? I mean, put your ad in the, in, uh, in, on Facebook and on social media and get some good buzz out there, maybe stir up a little controversy. And here's what's gonna happen. You do good things. And you, know, you have uh, all these good things happening and then God will bless you and you will be known in the city of New York as this dynamic church with all this fun stuff going on. And that, by the way, is what most church plants do. They wanna make sure they have the program all set up perfectly. Uh, they wanna make sure that um, all these things are done. And many of those things aren't really biblical. They're just kind of good things to do. You know. Like uh, there's a lot of church planning and church growth manuals that says have clean bathrooms. That's like the number one thing for many people in church. We want to have clean bathrooms. I was an urban pastor for 15 years. There's no such thing as clean bathrooms in the urban church. If you've got a clean bathroom in a church, you're in the suburbs. You're not in the city because city bathrooms are never, ever, ever clean. And so you have all these ideas about what makes a great church. If these good things are happening, then you'll get the reward of your church growing. But 
here's what's happening actually in the church that I think is a part of what makes the character of the church. It's not that doing all these things that attract attention. In fact, that attention leads to something else. What I think is actually happening is that the apostles are thrown into jail. That I think is one of the factors we ignore here. And some of that is our Western American lens, right? In the Western American lens, we want to be victorious. We want to be triumphant. Um, I've written extensively on lament and how lament is absent in the American church. And the reason it's absent is because we have these really embedded narratives around exceptionalism and triumphalism. We're a great people. We're a great nation. We're a great church. We're supposed to have success. We're supposed to open our doors and have these great worship teams and great preaching and nice buildings and everybody's supposed to come because we're doing these great things. There is a narrative of exceptionalism and triumphalism that is a huge part of American society as a whole, but maybe even more so a part of the American church, exceptionalism and triumphalism. And we don't know how to deal with suffering in the world. And that was why I wrote on lament because lament is the appropriate response to the reality of suffering that is in the world. But we don't want to acknowledge suffering because we want to jump quickly to, hey, look at all the people we're attracting with our great programs and our great worship and our great teaching. Um, that's the externalities. As I said, what really is drawing people to Christ is not the pyrotechnics of Christianity. It's not the laser light show of Christianity. It's that Christians know how to care and associate and address and have compassion, mercy, and justice for the very least of our brothers and our sisters. Um, this should be the norm for church life. So the norm for church planting should not be, what's your budget? Do you have enough money to rent a nice facility? The norm for church planting should not be, did you hire the top-notch musician? The norm for church planting, the norm for church planting, and, and listen to me carefully, the norm for church planting is, have you been in jail? Wouldn't that be an amazing like checklist? You know, so if I were to give a final exam to my church planting class, and uh, the questions were, have you ever been to jail? Have you ever been arrested? Have you ever cared and, and really been where people are suffering? Um, I'm going to name drop. All right. I'm going to name drop here right now because uh, part of one of the best commentaries and, and Pastor Chuck referred me to this uh, was by Willie Jennings on the book of Acts. And I know he's, I'm sure he's been referenced here. Uh, Willie was actually my, my doctoral advisor. So Willie is a very good friend and one, and one of my key mentors. And uh, Willie and I were at a conference together and I was kind of doing the, you know, in the black church, they have the, 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 um, uh, the armor bear. And so I was playing his armor bear. I was a student. So he was speaking at the conference. I was driving him around and carrying his bag. I didn't do that, but you know what I'm saying, right? I'm the armor bear for Willie. Um, and we're sitting in the car and we're talking and he's talking about actually Acts commentary. So I'm, I'm surprised this didn't make it into the commentary because he was working on this when I had this conversation. So I was sharing with him about, you know, Doc, doc if you ever want to get out of jury duty, or if there's a um, a way to not want to get on jury duty. This is a very simple thing. Pastors do not get on jury duty. Here's why. Because I've been, I've been called. The Wadir process, I get in there, and then they go through all these questions about, you know, why should we let you on this jury? And the questions are pretty much the same. I've been through this about four times now. Uh, do you know any convicted felons? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. Of course I know convicted felons. That's, that's what pastors do. We, we hang out with convicted felons. 
Uh, do you know anybody who's currently serving time? Well, yeah, I go visit the prison all the time. I know a lot of people who are serving time. That's what pastors do. Uh, have you ever been victim of an assault? Well, yeah, I was a pastor in an inner city neighborhood. Of course, I know what it feels like to be assaulted by a, a member of the congregation. And that's actually true. I have been assaulted by a member of my congregation. So when they go through the list of everything that disqualifies you from being on the jury, a pastor should be able to say, of course, I know convicted felons. Of course, I hang out with them. Of course, I've, I, I, I've visited jails and I know people in jail. Of course, I've, I've endured this suffering alongside my community and those that are in my community. Of course, this is my life. And that's what the church should be able to say. Not, we've got the, the, the cleanest bathrooms in all of Hell's Kitchen. Not, we've got the, the, the best sound equipment you can imagine in, in all of New York. But our members visit prisons. Our members care about convicted felons. Our members are putting their bodies and lives on the line in so many different ways to try to care for the teenager, for the children in our community. That's what draws the highest esteem of the community. Our perception is that we wanna impress people with our production, with our pyrotechnics. But the best church is not the ones getting caught up in what the crowds are looking for, but it is the community that genuinely offers the healing that is needed in our communities, the healing that is needed in our neighborhood. Um, being a part of prison and being imprisoned, as, uh, as we find out these early church leaders were, uh, you know about powerlessness. And that's one of the key factors in this passage. You learn what people in power do, and you learn what the powerless do. Uh, the people in power, of course, would be the high priests, the Sadducees, and all these learned individuals who have the power in that society. Um, and they were the authorities of, they can, you can, you know, they can put you in jail, they can arrest you. They're the law and order in that society. Uh, literally the law, because they're the teachers of the law. Uh, but sometimes the, the power of God is not found in human power but it's found in weakness. It's found in prison. And so I, again, I, I gotta say that if there's a prerequisite for urban church planning, I would say, have you been in prison? Have you cared for those that are hurting? Do you empathize and do you know what it's like to be powerless rather than powerful? We think of prisons as, oh, that's where the bad people go. That's where the criminals go. And it's statistics have pointed this out over and over again that American Christians in particular believe in law and order. And that's one of the reasons why there's party affiliations the way they are. We believe in law and order and we want law and order without realizing that sometimes when we side with law and order, we're siding with the powerful when the Bible seems to indicate we should side with the powerless. In fact, if you look at the scripture over and over again, uh, the Bible could not have been written unless there were people in jail. This is really kind of crazy, right? I mean, especially in the New Testament. Think of the amount of literature that we have, biblical literature, that comes from being written in prison. Paul's letters from prison. The, 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 this passage talking about the story of the church starting in prison. These are all important critical factors of what it means to be a church in a hostile community. Not that we're on the side of the powerful, 
but that we're actually on the side of the powerless. Not that we are aiming to gain more power, aiming to gain greatness, but we're actually siding with the very least of our brothers and our sisters. Um, I'll just uh, say this example. I'll close with this uh, example. So for the last three years, I've been um, uh, teaching at Stateville Correctional Center. It's actually now going on almost four years. Um, and it has been the most incredible experience of my life. Um, and so um, I remember that first day going into the prison. It's a max security prison outside of Chicago. It's where, really where most of the Chicago residents end up in prison. Um, and it's mostly black and brown bodies. It's about 75% African-American, about 15, 20% Latino. Uh, so it's mostly black and brown, brown bodies as oftentimes is the case that's incarcerated at uh, Stateville Correctional Center. Uh, now, some of you, it's hard to tell, maybe you already can tell. I'm, I'm a short Asian guy. I, I'm 5'8 I'm, I'm with really, really, you know, padded heels. That's, uh, that's you know, I could, I could stretch to 5'8 on a good day, you know, when, it's, when, it's, when I'm wearing, a, you know, a little bit heightened heels. Uh, but uh, I'm a short guy and I'm a relatively small guy. And uh, I'm walking into the prison to teach a class for the first time three plus years ago. And everybody in my class are huge men, black and brown men mostly. And they are large men and I'm this tiny little Asian guy walking into the classroom. So what do I need to do? Well, I need to assert my authority, don't I? Come on, I mean, I gotta take control of this class. So I make it clear, I, I let them know I've got two master's degrees, two doctorate degrees, I'm ordained. I'm, you know, I'm a full tenured professor at a university and I laid on thick about, all right, who's in charge here? Who's got the power? Well, that would be me, of course. So I wanted to make sure that folks knew that, okay, the little Asian man's in charge. And my, my students, by the way, were absolutely incredible. They were so gracious. They were so honoring. They were just so loving and caring. And they let me be in control of that classroom in, in a sense. Uh, that lasted for a few weeks. And then it all started falling apart. And it fell apart not because my students started like, you know, contradicting me or getting on my case. It started falling apart because I was falling apart. Uh, that first semester that I was teaching at uh, Stateville was one of the most difficult in my life ever. Things were falling apart around me in every way I could think of, things were falling apart. Uh, you name it, I was going through it. And after about eight weeks into the class, um, I couldn't keep it together anymore. I didn't have the power. I didn't have the strength for even my own sense of well-being. And I actually started falling apart. I actually started sharing what was going on and I broke down and I started crying. Not a good thing to do in a prison, in a max security prison, not when I look back. But here's what happened. Uh, Corzell Cole grew up in the south side of Chicago in a rough neighborhood, uh, went to prison fairly young because of something he probably was involved in, but not like the term that he ended up getting. Uh, Corzell is probably the kind of guy you think of in a Chicago area prison. African-American, he was about six foot four, 200 pounds, totally cut, tattoos all over his body, gold teeth. He's like, oh yeah, this is, the, this is, this is a Chicago thug. Uh, but Corzell was in my class. And as he kind of saw me breaking down, he comes over to me and he whispers in my ear, he says, I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but I really, really think you need this. And he just embraced me in a bear hug. 
and held me and let me just blubber in his arms for several minutes. Now, prisoners and guests are not allowed to touch. We're not allowed to even shake hands, barely shake hands. We certainly can't hug. You're certainly not supposed to be crying in a prisoner's arms. Uh, but Corazel was God in that moment. The power of the spirit was not on me, the educated, the free person, the person who had the credentials. The power of the Holy Spirit was on Corazel who just embraced me in his arms and allowed me to blubber in his arms for several minutes. Uh, the next week, another one of my students, Michael Sanders, I don't know how he figured it out. I don't, they don't really have internet access <laughs> in prison, uh, but he went online, said, and he found out how to say, my dear brother, I love you in Korean. And he said that to me in Korean. Another dear friend, um, William Jones, he was on death row before they got rid of death row in Chicago. So now he's a life sentence. He's 60 years old for a crime he committed like 45 years ago. He really was. He was a kid when he committed the crime, but he's in jail for life. A couple of weeks later, he said, um, I painted a painting for you. Uh, I wish I could show it to you, but he, I painted a painting for you. And I was thinking of you as I painted this painting. Apparently he thinks of a black man with a huge Afro because he painted a black man with a huge Afro. <laughs> That's me, apparently. <laughs> and he was charging the gates of hell and he was conquering the gates of hell. He said, this is you, brother. And I have that painting hanging, hanging up in my office wall right now. Um, this is what it means to not privilege the voice of the powerful, but to hear the voice of the powerless. To listen to those who are suffering rather than focusing on those who are, who have all the things together, who've got all the pyrotechnics and all the things we think a successful church should be. But instead, when we listen to the voice of the imprisoned, when we listen to the voice of the marginalized, this is when church really, really happens. So on Palm Sunday, I wanna remind you that Jesus did have a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, but that was the preview and we know this from the story of the Palm Sunday, that was the setup for what really happened for Jesus's work for redemption and salvation, which is his suffering and death on the cross. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate that Jesus is King, but we also recognize that Jesus's kingship, his power and his authority was really coming out of a place of profound suffering and sacrifice. May Hell's Kitchen become the church that is known not as the place that has it together, but as the place where the prisoner, where the marginalized, the hurting, they are welcomed into this community. Gracious God, thank you for the work you're doing here. I pray for the ongoing blessing on this community, that they would come to be known, not as the place where fun things happen, but the place where your spirit is found and the power of God goes forth to empower those to give love comfort, support, prayer, and grace and mercy to those in our communities that need it the most. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Ra. Uh, was not ready for the ending of that sermon, man. Um, really appreciate the word that you brought. Uh, and it seems appropriate to then prepare ourselves for uh, communion together and to prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, a table that is not about power, but a table that's about reconciliation, about our own relationships with our brothers and sisters on this earth, and ultimately about our relationship with God.
and being reconciled to him. This week, Holy Week, Jesus Christ institutes the Lord's Supper for his people. And we see it the night before his crucifixion on the cross. And so this morning, as you reflect on what Dr. Ra just preached, as you reflect on this continued series in the book of Acts, consider what it means for us as a church to be with the powerless, to seek the powerless, to give a voice to the powerless. Let's take a moment of silence as we reflect, as we prepare our hearts for this table, and then we'll come back uh, to partake in communion together. Just a moment of silence.